Hello, my name is Dylan, and this is the Heroes of Reality podcast, a place where I interview heroes of reality, of life, science, technology, and more, and I share the stories, lessons, journeys, inspiring you to be the hero of your reality. And on today's podcast, I interview Michael Ashley. He's a former Disney story consultant. Michael is a screenwriting professor at Chapman University. He has written over 20 books on numerous subjects, including four bestsellers. He recently co-authored Own the AI Revolution, Unlock Your Artificial Intelligence Strategy to Disrupt Your Competition. We talk about a range of topics, his plethora of books that he's read, the impressions that they had on him, and, and how he is really focused on getting big pictures out there, reducing the global suffering, and what we could do to heal as a community as a whole. So without any further ado, I'd like to welcome Michael Ashley. Hey, Michael. Thanks for joining me, man. Thanks for having me. Appreciate being here. Very cool, brother. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'd love to wrap with you. Um, uh, we've got a chance to connect. I know recently um, you, you uh, co-authored a, a book with uh, Neil Sahota, right, called Own the AI Revolution. That's right. Yeah. Um, so how did you get uh, mixed into the world of uh, AI and also with writing? Uh, well, I guess it's easier to begin the writing story, sure. uh, and then and then it'll come back around to AI. So I can tell you that I began in the writing world when I was uh, when I was ten years old. Let me back up. When I was eight years old, my parents separated, and my mom ended up dating a guy. And uh, I was about eight, nine, or ten years old. And uh, before we would go to sleep at night, he would tell my brother and me stories, mm-hmm. and they involved hobbits and elves. And I was really, really into it. I loved these stories. His name was Richard. And then one day he goes, "You know, this is actually a book. This is The Hobbit." And they said, "And there's also The Lord of the Rings." And I said, "Oh my God, I got to read these books." So at ten years old, I read The Hobbit and I read the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy in about a month. And um, my, I had a, I was in fourth grade, and my teacher had an assignment. It was the first really cool creative writing assignment we ever had and I got to write my first story and so I wrote a story about wizards elves and hobbits and my teacher got really mad Uh she called my mom she called my mom and she goes your son plagiarized Tolkien and she my mom said no he didn't I actually watched him write it he just took the ideas that he read from the books and then read his own wrote his own stories and she goes in that case he's really good uh and then she became (laughs) She became my biggest supporter. Her name was her name is Mrs. Jaworski, and so then from then on, I wanted to be a writer. Uh, and so I'll, I'll skip ahead uh, to to writing the AI book. There's many more things we can go back to if you like. But um, I I grew up loving science fiction, not just fantasy books, but I really love science fiction. Mm-hmm. And so um, just always really interested in in philosophical themes. So my major in college was philosophy. And what I love about science fiction is that it allows you the freedom to explore these really big ideas. So people like Olaf Stapledon and Philip K. Dick were really important to me. And um, I started my own content company, my own writing company in 2015. Mm-hmm. And I, I had uh, Ari Shen, who I think is a mutual friend of ours. Mm-hmm. He, he and I are in a networking group. And I think it was in 2016 or 2017, he said, I'd like you to meet Neil. And so Neil came to my office and he told me, I, I want to write a book about artificial intelligence. And I said, that's why I love what I do, because I've always been interested in artificial intelligence. And now I have a chance to actually learn about it firsthand from you and write a book about it. And uh, that's how that got started. That's awesome. Yeah, the book is actually, it's, it's very comprehensive. And what I like about it is it gives you a lot of practical use cases. I mean, it's almost like, you know, it's funny because if you look at artificial intelligence, it's, it's almost like where you take uh, an expert and you more or less put them into the system and you get the AI to think like the expert. I felt like the book itself was really much uh, Neil uh, digitized and brought into a book with his networks, with his knowledge, with his base, and, and then really, it's a really great kind of get you up, get you going in the world of artificial intelligence. What did you really learn? What were some of your takeaways, your nuggets, and, and things that, that kind of aha moments that you got from actually writing the book? Well, by the way, I like the, I like the visual of, of Neil being digitized. Uh, so. Good job on that. Uh, what I would say that the, the takeaway and some of the most important things, first of all, I think it's really important that people understand that there's a difference amongst the kinds of 
AI that exist. Uh, and then, and more simply, the ones that don't exist. So most people don't realize that there's something called artificial general intelligence. And if they're fans of uh, 2001 Space Odyssey, this is AGI in effect. This is an entity that has the kind of consciousness that you and I take for granted. The actual artificial intelligence uh, that we're using is artificial narrow intelligence. And that's the kind of AI that you use on your your phone to get you different places and things like that. Um, so that would be a, a huge thing for me um, for me to realize, and that you know, for people that uh, aren't aware of of what's going on in AI, they think, oh, all of a sudden we're just going to have these uh, these terminators and they're going to take over and they're going to have their own agency, and uh, that's just not the case. Mm-hmm. Although that may be the case, although I I tend to not agree with that. I don't think that's going to occur, and we could go into that, but. Um, that, that's just not what's going on right now. And the other thing I think it was – there's many other breakthroughs, but I'll say one more thing is the idea that you can ha- you can generate uh, what we call artificial empathy. And so it is possible to train the, the machines there to understand what people are feeling. Um, of course, there's not – truly possessing uh, empathy, but there are ways to, to make smarter technology. And one of the major ways that, that I saw it occurring, we wrote about in the book, um, is uh, people that are using um, AI doctors and therapists. Mm-hmm. And so especially when it comes to, to mental health, mm-hmm. um, it allows you to open up about the problems and the challenges that you're suffering. And we know that a lot of people feel um, judged when they when they even when they go see their therapist or they talk to their friends about things that are bothering them and so this allows them to uh to to open up in a better way yeah it's really interesting as you're taking narrow slices of of humans and and being able to say okay we can do the empathy bit or at least do mock empathy bit to where you can have at least it feels like they have an understanding and a knowledge set you know and i'm sure it's going to come to a point where it progresses past what is your what is your general process when you're trying to like bite off a book like what does it look like for you to try to say okay i'm gonna write a book i'm gonna i'm gonna break down this stuff do you have a structured format or how do you how do you how do you co-write with someone to you know uh to 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 bring that birth that book into fruition oh sure um well so i've written 25 books for clients in the last five years and uh typically what happens is I begin with a few questions. The questions include things like, who is your audience? What do you want them to learn? Um, we go through their potential idea of what an outline would look like in terms of the chapters. And uh, I also ask them, what do you want to get out of this book? And so from different uh, clients I have, they all have different rationales for wanting to write a book. So for Neil, it very much helped him with his speaking career, with his brand. Mm-hmm. I have other people that want to leave a legacy for their grandchildren. I have other people that want to use it for business and that can take many different forms. Um, once we have those preliminary questions out of the way, uh, my background uh, is is also in journalism. I've, I was a reporter. And so I spent a lot of time, and I guess you would call it in the discovery phase, where I'm asking them questions and it's leading me to build an outline. Mm-hmm. What I found recently, especially when I have more complicated books, is it's a good idea to think about what the thesis might be for a particular chapter. So if you had to have a high level concept for each of the chapters and know where you're going, then what I like to do is I like to do a macro version of the outline in terms of, okay, these are what the chapters are going to cover from the, the thesis, the high level sentence or two or paragraph. Then once we know what the chapters are going to in- entail, then we drill down more. We make them that we make the micro outline in terms of, okay, this is the supporting detail that we're going to include here. This is what's going to help support our argument. And most importantly, probably these are the the case studies and the stories that we're going to include. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of uh, Malcolm Gladwell, Mm -hmm. and I like how he uses a story as a hook Mm -hmm. to get us in because people are very interested in the story part. And then you sprinkle in the, the important content so that it flows well and people get invested in the material. Yeah, the story gives you something to grab onto. I mean, twenty-five books in five years is 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 a uh, is quite quite a lot to run through. Um, in order to do that, you really have to overcome a lot of creative mental blocks. I would imagine. You know, what are the typical um, what are the typical trip ups that young writers have when they go to write a book and they're like they're looking in front of it? Like, what are the have you seen? As it, have you had moments where you you kind of been able to climb past? a actual thing that like a a typical block where you can feel that block happening and how do you get around those types of writer blocks or any of those types of uh creative stopping points i guess i i guess 
the way I see it is I never really had that. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I'm not trying to say that I'm super special in that way, but there's a book called On Writing by Stephen King. And what he says is that people that are professional writers don't wait for inspiration. They just do it. And uh, when I was – I got my master's degree in screenwriting uh, in 2007. And then afterwards, I worked – I moved to uh, I moved to Hollywood and I worked – or moved to LA and I worked in Hollywood, I worked at creative artist agency. And so I was a professional reader. I read scripts uh, at night and by day I worked a day job as an insurance broker. And then every day I had a writing partner and every day I came home from my insurance job and I wrote from 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. I kept it up for about five years and I wrote on the weekends too. And so for me, um, there was just, I was always doing it and I was just pushing myself. And I think it just, it really ingrained itself in me. Uh, some people, I think that, that have an alternative, they can do something else, then they don't feel the pressure. But for me, I just always felt like I had to do this. I had to write. And, um, and that way I didn't ever have those creative blocks because it was more like, this is my job and this is just what I do. And so, um, the only thing I'd say is close is I was working on the, the first book I ever did for a client. It was a kid's, uh, it was a kid's children's story. Uh, it kind of like Harry Potter cause it was very long. It was over a hundred thousand words and it was very complex. We had different outlines. It took me about a year and a half to complete. And so there was a huge backstory spanning thousands of years. And so there were different times in the book. I had a, a benefactor, a patron, if you will, that, that paid for this and we did it together. And it was to share ideas about how to make the world a better place. He, his background is in science. My background is more generalist, uh, philosophical, creative, uh, like, you know, I worked for, worked with Disney, stuff like that. Um, and so there were times when I had to, um, sit with a, 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 a chapter for hours on end to figure out how to make it work. And so what I would do with that, um, it wasn't as if I had a, a block. I just had to figure out creative problems. I would, uh, I always meditated anyway. I've been meditating for about eight years and I, I would meditate uh, so that was one thing. The other thing is I would take long walks. And then if I was really challenged by a problem, what I would try to do is I would put on a movie and let the movie wash over me and try to distract me, but really was allowing my subconscious to work things out. And what I found is I would be writing things down. I wasn't really watching the movie. Things would just occur to me when it happened. So my my advice to young writers or to anyone that's trying to write is just to do it and to get over the procrastination by forcing yourself to do it. There's no other way. You just got to get there and do it. You got to show up and do it. Yeah. Well, there's. I mean, it's it's so funny because you get in front of that blank white page, and that's usually the scariest place to start, right? You have this big blank page. And you're like, oh, why do I? And then people have a tendency to go into their heads a lot. I was actually talking. I was helping this young uh, uh, kid um, who actually wants to be a writer. Um, love to introduce you to her. Um, but uh, she was like trying to figure out how do I write something, how do I get started, what do I, and she was trying to overthink it, overanalyzing it, trying to make it really big in her head, and I was trying to like work with her through the process of like, just, can you give me like a 60 second story? Can you, can you, can you give me just something on, just get it out a little bit to get that, to get that engine going. Do you, um, do you subscribe to like doing like journaling or writing prompts or anything like that in terms of like reflective writing? And if so, what does that look like for you to, to do reflective writing? Um, yes, I completely agree with it. I, I don't really do it these days, but when I was uh, growing up, uh, a big inspiration to me was Jim Morrison. When I was uh, 12 years old, um, I read No One Here Gets Out Alive. And, um, and I don't, like I said, I always loved writing. And uh, I was the kind of kid that uh, I never paid attention in school. I didn't follow what my teachers said, but I always read. So I was supposed to be doing something else at school. I would just be reading. Mm-hmm. And so what I would do when I was in school is I would also be writing poetry. So it, when I was from about t- the age of 12 to 15, I would just write tons of poetry. And that was my way of, I guess, of journaling. And I'd also journal stories of my life and things like that and turn my personal life into fictional stories. That's cool. It seems like you have a lot of kind of uh, um, anchor points when it comes to uh, emotional anchor points or reference points when it comes to books. Like you say, when they... I had this thing that happened to me, so I have this book to reflect upon it. And I just Stephen King, which makes sense entirely. Um, do you have a couple of like, if if you do you have like the top three books you have that you go to in terms of um, it sounds like these um, 
emotional or mental mindset anchors to, 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 to kind of keep you going on the path that you're going on? Uh, sure. I mean, I'd say that probably the one of the biggest influences in my life was Jack Kerouac's On the Road. Uh, that's still my favorite book. Um, what I love about that book is that the you know he's considered one of those transcendental writers um someone like william blake that was really in love with the ecstatic version of life and so it's interesting i didn't know this when i was reading it uh i think i read it the first time when i was 13 or 14 and you know what he's talking about is the end of a of a, a version of america you know he's writing about the the 1950s he's considered the the founding of the of the beat generation really came out with jack kerouac and so you have the rise of what he thought of the corporatization of of this country, but there were pockets of it where there's this deep spirituality that was still in America, this reverence for nature and for life and for beauty. And so Neil Cassidy, uh, who's the real character this, that, that uh, Dean Moriarty is based on, he was this guy that was just in love with life. He's always fast talking, super into cars and women and, and booze and just getting out there and jazz. You know, jazz runs all the way through the whole book. And so um, for, for me, uh, there I've read all kinds of different books, but, you know, sometimes books, uh, especially if they have a lot of um, conflict in them, can be kind of depressing, too. Like the book example would be The Road by Cormac McCarthy. That's a great book. But you read it and you're like, oh, my God, it's so depressing. Um, this book on the road to me was a celebration of life. Um, I'd say another touchstone uh, book for me was a science fiction book called Star Maker. And for this book, what was so great about it was that uh, what happens is this guy uh, is, is laying in a field and all of a sudden his consciousness goes to outer space and he has no body. But it, 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 his, his body, his mind, his consciousness is free floating and he goes from planet to planet and he's kind of like mind melding, if you know that reference from Star Trek, yeah, yeah. where he's mind melding with other brains and other, well, other minds because not really brains and, and different species of aliens. And so they start to be in uh, they're working in concert, exploring the cosmos together. And what I loved about that book is really the idea that uh, you could – you get past the ideas of right and left, Democrat and Republican, uh, and just everyone, every being, every consciousness is welcome. And to imagine what a world would look like where we celebrated all these other ideas and the plurality of, of, of different views. Mm. And so I could go on with more and more books, but those were two that were big for That's me. That's great. No, I think I think it's fantastic because you have all these different. I mean, you, you you go so deep in the book structures and what you're talking about these stories. These stories kind of have this emotional imprint on you, and you're saying like this because it's a it's a principle, right? If I ever just say, oh, um, we're all connected, you know, it's not left, it's not right, it's everything. Okay, great. That's that. I I get what you're saying, but it doesn't resonate on that deep level where it actually goes into your soul and has an imprint on you. And, and, and it sounds to me like you, you're like you almost have like a, a book per per principle that you go through. <laughs> do you, sure, sure. Do you have do you, I mean, do you have a philosophy by the way you live life? Is there something a, a, a book reference or something that you say, OK, this is my philosophy. This is how I try to live my life. And 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 possibly is there a book that 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 um, uh, is the principle for that? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'd say, I mean, actually, uh, Star Maker is, is pretty much up there with that. I would say that, um, so I told you I was a philosophy major, and for, for a while I was a big fan of Nietzsche, and I really subscribed to the will to power I idea. Um, but then um, there were a series of events in my life that really shook my beliefs to the core. I got very sick when I was uh, 33. And uh, I, I got very depressed. And so um, I began meditating at that point uh, very seriously. And I really changed my, my view about things. And so ever since I, I began really getting into it, and so the book that really uh, opened me up to, to thinking about that um, was called, um, it was Flock Floating. And it was about this gentleman telling his story about it. And so what happened was I, uh, I had this dream one, I, one night and uh, I was actually, I was reading that book. My wife got me floating and got me a float lab um, gift certificate. <laughs> and so this explains it. And what it explained yeah. was that uh, all throughout history, human beings have looked for altered states of consciousness. Now you can get there with drugs, but you can get there in other ways too. Meditation is one, uh, dancing is one, fasting is one, and of course, uh, floating, float lab, sensory deprivation tanks are, are a different one. And so I had this dream that night. And in the dream, what had happened was uh, I was able to go back 
and experience all the, the moments from my childhood, but see the people at the ages that they were at the time. And it was the best dream I ever had. In fact, the weird thing was, it was only, I was only asleep for about five minutes because I couldn't sleep that night. But if you know, and when you're in dream world, um, things, it doesn't matter how long you're there. The dream can, can be much, much longer. And so what it, it really, going to the float lab and doing meditation, what it did, it changed my view from the will to power to more of, I guess, the sense that uh, we're all one. And uh, it dovetail with me. I was, I was reading a lot of uh, lectures and hearing a lot of lectures by Alan Watts. And the idea behind what he was saying is we are all uh, forms of divinity and we are all um, eternal and we're all really connected. We are one consciousness experience, experiencing life subjectively. And I, I truly believe that, that that is what's going on. And so if you take that idea, and I'll give you another book that really talks about this, Conversations with God. And there's a part in Conversations with God where he says, how many people are, are, are here, are, are in the room? And what he means by this, how many people are really on this planet? He says, just one. And we're all one is his point. And so if you take that view, if you take the view that we are all one and that we are just subjectively experiencing life um, and these different manifestations, you know, I'm in this body, this vehicle that I call myself, Michael, you're, you're in one called Dylan. And uh, that allows us, if we do think that way, we get past all these things that are seemingly dividing us, especially in this moment right now when there's such divisions of, over race. We stop thinking about ourselves as black or white or you know, whatever color we are. Um, and we'd start realizing that what is really be behind those eyes that are looking at us, there's really a, a soul there. And that soul is all connected. And so we stop thinking about, okay, if, if you win, then I lose. But we realize that we can all win together and the, a rising tide lifts all ships. So if you had to say, if I had to say what my philosophy is, is that we're all one. And that the, the, if we realize that our fortunes rise and fall with each other, mm-hmm. once we realize that, all of the problems, all the problems we think we have begin to disappear because you wouldn't spite yourself. You wouldn't hurt yourself if you understood these things. And that way, if we stop thinking about the other person as the other, but realize that we're connected, to me, that, that's how you begin to solve the, the challenges that we face. That's beautiful. But could you say a little bit more about the will to power? I'm not actually familiar with that. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, okay. So Nietzsche's idea was that every, uh, every being, every entity – what, they're, what they primarily want to do is they want to have power. They want to exert power. They want to take power. And so whatever – his big problem was the, the, was the Christian church. And so what he said is the, they perverted the ideals of Jesus. And instead, their way to claim power was to feign meekness and that they were to give up worldly pleasures and uh, to do all these things, they would they would act like okay, we need to turn the other cheek. But really, they're only playing a game. They're playing a game. This is a way to get people's power. We pretend to be good people, but really, we're we're doing these other things. And so his point was that all people all people really just want selfish things. They want to be his word was the the overman or the uberman. I guess is how you pronounce it in German or ubermensch. I think what what it was. Um, and so that's really what we want. We just want to be. We just want to satiate our drive for power. And I I I think obviously people have self interest, but I think that people want more than just pure power. Sure. Yeah. Okay, that makes a ton of sense. Well, you're, I mean, you're, you're going up the different levels, right? There's the animalistic, you know, fight to survive, but you're almost going up Maslow's hierarchy or other ones, and eventually at the top, it's we're all one, we're all connected. I think Spinoza had that thought, too, um, about the we're all like kind of like the same roots of a vine that connect to the, the one big mm-hmm. thing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's beautiful. Um, how do you think in like this day and age with us being in such a divide with um, – with uh, all the protests and all the drama and stuff like that. I mean, what could we really do to, to get everybody to be connected under and, and have that, that perception, that mindset? Is there anything that you think that if you could wave a magic wand and get everybody to do a thing that that would help kind of show that as, a, as the, your truth to, that, to all these people? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that we have much more in common than we have that's different. And I think that there are certain groups and certain individuals that gain, going back to that word power for a second, they gain power by sowing division in this country and sowing division across the planet. And they've done it for millennia. Um, It is It has been shown, uh, I'm not the first one by any means to say this, Uh, if you go back to the art, uh, go back to any really books about uh, war, 
um, the art of war, I mean, for instance, if you want to rule a people, keep them divided, mm. right? And so I think, unfortunately, people play into this way, way too often. And so if you look at if you look at social media for just a moment, there are many good things that social media do. But we know now that the people that created the apps that we like so much, they used the same techniques that are found in uh, casinos in, in Las Vegas, right? They're, they're meant to court our attention, to hold our attention. And how do you do that? You get people emotionally engaged. And unfortunately, the best way to keep people emotionally engaged is to keep them angry or to keep them sad, but mostly it's angry and pissed off. And so right now, what we have is we have a lot of people that are expressing their opinions, which is it's great. This country is, is built on a plurality of ideas. But these these engines, these social media engines are courting people and their anger and their hostility and they're amplifying that. And so you go on social media and you you see all these people that are that differ from you. They're saying things that you don't agree with and it makes you angry, but it's helping. It's benefiting their bottom line because, okay, that, that translates into more ads. In some ways, it, trains, it, it, it actually leads into cultivating certain behaviors. But if we step back from the reactive mode, and we, we pause for just a moment and we think about, you know, you and I have a lot in common. And if we were to have a conversation, if we were to try to hear the other person out, if we were to use, uh, if we tried to cultivate empathy between the, the two of us, uh, that we would find that we, we have much more in common. And if we as a people begin to realize these things, we realize that they, that um, it doesn't matter what your color is, doesn't matter what your race is, uh, doesn't matter what your, your sex is, that we have a lot more in common and we begin to see that, that unity together, um, then we can begin to solve all these problems. We begin to de- develop real communities. Instead, right now, um, we have flashpoints and people to get angry about something and then they, they get pissed off about it and they put their attention there. But meanwhile, there are a lot of other things going on, a lot of things to be very happy about. And if we can try to sow unity as opposed to disunity, that, that's how we begin to solve these challenges, I believe. Got it. So it's, it's, it's a lot about, it's like, it's, it's a lot about saying not letting these in, these divides basically cause engagement because really it is, it's almost like a dysfunctional relationship, right? Where there's a, the, 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 the dysfunctional relationship, somebody wants a reaction and so they, they light a fire so that the person engages and then you have this back and forth like fire throwing match, right? And it's like, okay, right. that, that, that does create engagement. It's true, but it doesn't actually create, you know, the, 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 the unity and the banding around things. So it's more about focusing on the, hey, this, yes, all that stuff is on fire and that is true, but let's talk about the, what we have in common. Let's talk about what we all care about. You know, what do we all, what do we all love? What do we all, pat- which a lot of us all want the same things, but we go about it in completely different ways, right? We seek connection, we, we seek empathy, and some people do it in subversive ways that cause other divides, right? Um, so it kind of seems like all roads leave, lead to love, connection, and unity. It's just some people do it in kind of backwards ways, dysfunctional ways per se. Sure. And I'd say there's one other thing is we tend to treat, especially in America, we tend to, to only work on the symptoms. Going back to our healthcare system for, for a moment, mm-hmm. Mostly doctors uh, just give you prescriptions that will solve something on, on an acute basis, right? We're not looking at the real core problem. Like we're not really, unfortunately, going after solving cancer. We're looking more about treating it. Um, I would say the same thing is occurring in, in our society, right? Um, even looking at Black Lives Matter for just a moment and looking at what's going on there, um, are we dealing with the real problem? I would say no. I think that the real problem at the core of this is is economics, right? And if we're if we're just give, if you look at corporations that are just giving lip service to saying we stand with you, okay? Well, we had uh, we've had multiple um, chances uh, for, in this economic problem we've had with, with COVID nineteen. We've had all these bailouts. These bailouts went to corporations, right? They went to the banks, right? Just like they did after two thousand eight. After two thousand eight, we saw the most amount of black people were kicked out of their homes. Right. They have people have been kicked out of their homes yet. Thank God. But that is just around the corner. Are we really spending the time to fix the systemic problems? Are we building communities where people want to live, where people feel invested? Right. Are we are we working on that? Are we are we going after the shiny thing? I would say we're going after the shiny thing and we're not looking about the systemic economic inequality that has been happening for decades. We've seen 
um, uh, but black people in particular, but we've seen the middle class hollowed out in this country. We've seen um, the we've seen jobs uh, going overseas. We have not seen real real wages increase. Mean, at the meantime, these corporations are doing fantastic and they're doing even better now after COVID-19 because we've leveled uh, small businesses because of the shutdown. And so you know, we look at right now, why are people acting the way that they're acting? Um, they're pissed off and, and, and rightly so. They've been locked down for the last few months. They don't have economic opportunities for people that lost their jobs. They may have lost uh, their health care. And so I very much stand with this idea that we've got to look at how do we fix this systemically? How do we give um, all people in this country better opportunities? What would better opportunities look like? I mean, I, I agree with you in terms of systemic changes, you know, being able to do things from the, from the ground up. I mean, what would community programs look like that would create opportunities? What would, you know, how would you, in, how would you really get people out of this, in, you know, this negative pattern of, of pain and suffering in, this, in these environments to, to really stimulate that? What is that? Is that, is that education? Is that funding? Is that, is that it, what, how do you create these types of communities that really, you know, create an ecosystem of opportunity? Sure. Well, I'll answer it like this. So, so on our show, on, on Changing the Story, we had a, a good friend of mine who's an African-American activist in Chicago. And what he was saying is, look, we don't want a handout. And I, w- I would follow the same, same logic. I don't believe in, in giving people handouts. I mean, I believe in helping people very much. Uh, and, and especially if you uh, destroy their ability to make money, yes, you should be giving those people money if you're going to take away their ability to earn. But if we're looking at a grander picture from a systemic point of view, I would say it looks like this. There are so many things If we walk around Orange County, and by the way, we have a good here. Uh, we walk around Orange County. There are many things that we could do better. Uh, there could, there could be trash on the streets. There could be more trees planted. Um, there are there's a huge need, uh, even before, well, especially before this, for um, the people that need uh, working parents need places to to take their children, right? They need uh, places for when it comes to childcare, when it comes to healthcare. There's so many different ways that we could be creating jobs programs, but I don't even like the word jobs. It should be career programs for people to do what they want to do with their lives. Uh, if you go around. Uh, the Midwest of this country right now. Uh, I'm from St. Louis. And when I was there recently, I saw wide sections uh, of the city that would just look like they're bombed out. Nothing is going on right there. This is such wasted opportunities. Um, we could be creating a jobs program in, in this country, but again, going on, I wouldn't even say a jobs program. I would say an entrepreneurial program. So Andrew Yang, uh, before he ran for president, was very much involved in this kind of thing. And what he's been sounding the alarm on is that uh, people believe that under the fourth industrial revolution that we're going to lose a a lot of jobs to automation. Okay, that may be true. But we can also be helping the young people of tomorrow to have economic security. I truly believe economic security comes from yourself. I'm an entrepreneur. And um, what I found, I had a lot of corporate jobs is I watched people that I was working with what, they were kicked out of the building. They were fired, and they told. And then they changed the locks and they said, "There's the door." And I saw when I was working there that look, I couldn't trust that if there was a downturn or something happened, that I wouldn't be fired. The only security that I that I could believe in was a security that I created myself. And so, what I would encourage is programs that allow people to take control of their lives in an economic fashion. And the other thing I would very much encourage that unfortunately has been destroyed in this country is we don't have um, community anymore. Uh, our civic institutions have been atomized. So people uh, don't have these groups that they go to anymore. They don't have uh, clubs where people get together and they share ideas. I want to see us bring that back because when you have community, when you have your friends and your brothers and your sisters and people around you, you feel connected to your community. And when something like that happens, when you feel upset, well, then you're not likely to want to burn down a building because you're angry. Instead, you're going to look at, okay, that upsets me. That pisses me off. But what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to talk to that person because we're in this together and we're going to build something better so that we don't see that more injustice is occurring. I love that. With um, and I and I totally agree with there. With if you can teach people how to um, create their own businesses, create value. Because really, uh, an entrepreneur is someone who is of service to the community. They find mm-hmm. they find what the issue is and then they solve that problem. And by solving that problem, they become an entrepreneur because they're basically creating value for someone else and they're receiving that value in terms of monetary benefit. So makes a ton of sense. What do you think are some good elements that make a community? What are some, what are some, uh, what are the different, like, 
What are the emotions? What are the connections? What are the different pieces uh, that would make a strong, stable, healthy, uh, a thriving community? Well, I think that if you have similar goals in mind, I think that's that's really important. You say, okay, this is what the mission is. This is what we're trying to do. I think also giving people a stake in it and a voice because, you know, different people have different personality types. Somebody wants to be the leader. That's fine. Somebody wants to take notes. Somebody wants to be the doer. So like I'll give you an example right now. Um, uh, I'm not great at putting things together. I'm, I'm not a person that could build a house or somebody they believe in could fix a door. Uh, my, when I lived up in Marin, I, have, I had a buddy up there, and I still do. His name is Zach. And that's what he's really, really good at. And so if I were going to build a community, Zach would be working on that if he wanted to. That's what he's awesome at. That's not something that I'm, I'm good at. Uh, my skills lie somewhere else. So finding what people's skills are uh, and, and letting them put them to use. And I would say also... Uh, the ability for people to be heard. Um, I think it's 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 a, a, a tightrope you have to watch walk sometimes. Uh, for instance, I was a a board member for the Mission Viejo Chamber of Commerce, and so I would uh, I was also the president of the networking uh, organization that met in the mornings. And so I would try to give people a voice and try to in- incorporate all those ideas. But you also realize at some point, if everybody speaks and if everybody talks, you can't ever get anything done. And so it makes you understand why you need representative government. So if there's some way that everybody feels seen and heard, but you can still get things done. And find out a way that, that to make that work. That, it's a beautiful thing. It's it's a challenging thing to do. And so what I found is when I was on the board too, you want to give people a platform. You want to hear people out. But at the same time, you also have to say, okay, we heard everything, and now we have to make a decision. So I'm not saying it's easy, but those are the things. Those are the balances yeah. that you have to find. But the challenges with that. I've, what I've noticed is there's always there seems to be a circular pattern of idealistic and um, opportunistic. Uh, uh, cycles. So for example, uh, man creates an ideal. We stand for this. We want to give the people a voice. So we give them a voice and they go, oh great. Then how do we create a mechanism to support that voice? Oh, we're going to create special interest groups. Those special interest groups are going to come in and be the voice of the people. Then Mm -hmm. what happens is the people who have all the money flood the special interest groups and they go, we've heard you special interest groups. Smoking's great. Let's not mention the 500 million people that die a year due smoking because you know what? We've already heard you. You guys want it. So how do you combat that? Because there's always a subversion of idealistic beliefs that tend to creep into systems. Is there any types of mechanisms you can do? Because when you say representative government, I don't know if we walked around and said, do you feel like your voice has been heard? It, I, mean, I mean, the whole reason why there's protests in the streets is because they're like, I am not being represented. I, I, don't, I don't feel like there's anybody in Washington or anybody around that are really listening on the ground. They're just, they're listening to whoever is going to be filling their coffers. On, on that type of topic. And so it's a very difficult because you have that, the, again, the opportunistic, I'm you know, claiming power to influence things versus the idealistic all in one. How do you, how do you really have the, um, we are all one rise above that opportunistic kind of like subversion of the ideal? Sure. Well, I think that, you know, in our sanitized version of Martin Luther King, we are told that he, you know, he was just there for civil rights. And obviously he's a huge icon for civil rights. But what people don't know, unfortunately, is that he was also really very much engaged on the inequality issue when it comes to economics. And so he was very much involved in the Poor People's Party. And the fact is there is no real party for poor people in this country. To your point, they are left out. The special interests, the lobbyists, they're not looking out for those people. They're looking out for the big corporations. And so the problem that I think that we have right now is that, you know, we have conflicting interests. And so right now it's been proven there's a a very influential study uh, by Princeton that says we essentially have an oligarchy at this point where – the the things that the vast number of people care about in this country, what they care about, legislation does not get passed when it, when that happens. So, for instance, most people in this country want universal health care. Most people in this country don't want to pay exorbitant amount of money to go to college and then to be in debt for the rest of their lives, right? But if you were to listen to the politicians, uh, that's not as, that is not at all what people want. Same thing when it comes to housing. To me, it's, it's an absolute crime that, that some people have 10 or 20 houses and, and some people don't have one house. 
we can do better than this in, in this country. We can do better than this in this world. Uh, if you've driven anywhere in the Midwest, you know there's huge swaths of land that, that people could be living in, right? There, there's so much uh, plenty, so much abundance in this country in particular that we're not utilizing. And so what I would say is, first of all, it, it begins with awareness, right, that we have a problem. And then the second thing is we have got to build in better uh, levers in our, in, our, uh, in our system here. Uh, we have checks and balances. Our founding fathers did create those things. Right now, unfortunately, they've been perverted. And so um, basically capitalism has run amok in our system. And so the people that have the most money are the people making more, more the most laws and those laws favor them. And it goes on and it goes on and on and on and on. And so we have to get to some place where the people that don't have the means, the people that are poor are represented and that their interests are represented in this country. And well, if that were to occur, we would see wide systemic changes. Right now, we're talking about um, we're talking about slavery when it comes to uh, Black Lives Matter. We're talking about this country was built upon slavery, and that's absolutely true. But what people don't realize is there's other forms of slavery still occurring in this country. Uh, essentially, the prison industrial complex is using a different form of slavery right now. The people that are fighting fires that happen in California are being paid pennies and dimes to do this. And that's just one uh, horrific example, uh, not to mention other forms of slavery when it comes to human trafficking there's it's still happening all around the world right now and so we've got to to, to help the and, and create a better world to fix those things uh, i completely agree on that 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 <laughs> the prison industrial complex is like literally it it, it is a it is a form of 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 um ooh, it's a form of uh uh like suffering alchemy right so you're like literally taking people who are going through and you're gonna, I'm gonna put these people in prison and I'm gonna have these people work for these things, get paid nothing, and I'm gonna profit off of their pain, which is like, right. the, which is really the, the I guess, you, I, I, well, now I think about it, there's actually, there's two forms of, of economics when it comes to entrepreneurship. You can, you can profit off of actually having value creations and serving people and creating positive emotions, but you can also economically benefit off of suffering and pain and indentured slavery. It's one is, one is a, a, a more controlled means uh, which is is completely destructive. It's just how do you dismantle these systems when they have so much momentum? And it's it's, it's and uh, what it made me think about too was the when you're talking about Airbnb or, or, or you're talking about people with ha- uh, houses, 15 houses. It makes me think of like if you did like Airbnb for poor people, where you say, hey, look, you've got like 15 houses, man. Just what <laughs> house are you going to be into? We'll go ahead and let people go and stay in that other ones, and then we'll we'll kind of rotate around. But that you know, it comes to you have that you have to counterbalance that with. You don't you economical like rewards for effort, right? So I mean, you're a grinder. I mean, you you you've you've done you know a, a bunch of po- you've written 25 books in five years. That's a lot of grind, right? Some people yeah. just want to sit around watching TV, eating ho hos and Twinkies, or they or at least they're 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 actually stuck in that. So how do you? It's hard to balance out that you know economical reward for the effort you put in, along with like if should the people that that don't want to try, that aren't really producing value, be, be given the same and equal um, rewards? Like, how do you balance out that reward system of effort gets you gains with also um, people that don't even want to try? Well, I think that there's a fallacy that poor people aren't hardworking. I just don't think that's true at all. Some of the hardest working people I ever met were poor. I'll give you an example. I, uh, when I was actually first time I was an entrepreneur was my early 20s. Um, I had a, a company that we ran it at my university and was kind of like a precursor to Facebook. It's like Facebook meets Craigslist. And in order to, to fund it, um, yeah, it was, it's, it was a whole complicated thing. And if that's not important for this part of the story. Uh, <laughs> It, yeah, it was, it was it was about basically buying and selling textbooks you could share with your friends. They had a dating part, a whole thing with bars, and anyway, it was it was a great. It was before its time. It sounds like an adventure. Uh, yeah, but anyway, to to fund it, uh, what I would do is I would work at night so that I had my days and so I could support the business, and then I had my days open to take meetings with people that were we were selling advertisements to. So I worked in a rubber factory. Uh, on my shift was, I believe it was eight eight a eight p.m. to eight a.m. 
And so I would do this job and it was brutal. It was awful. It was, and, um, I, I worked with these guys and, uh, it, I could see that this job, I only worked there for about six months. I mean, it was, it's gonna, it would, it was like a Dickens novel. It's gonna end up killing these people. And all of them were hardworking. I mean, these were hardworking guys, by the way, I've had a lot of jobs in my life. Uh, and I've, I've worked a lot alongside a lot of different people, uh, a lot of poor people. And they were they were they were very hardworking people, and so I think that if you were to listen to certain pundits, they would say, "Well, they they didn't earn that they didn't earn uh, that yacht, they didn't earn that private plane." I just don't think that's true. I think that if it's like a game of Monopoly, if, if you put in this this analogy, if you come into the game of Monopoly and you have like five or ten bucks, and everybody has a bunch of houses and hotels, and you're trying to make it across that board without landing on them, if you start from that, you start that way. You know, where everyone else has houses and hotels and you have a few bucks, you're always going to always going to go bankrupt. You're always going to lose or you can barely squeak by. And I think for the vast majority of people that are poor, that's their starting point. Right. They don't have those opportunities. that A lot of people take for granted. And so if you level that playing field just a bit and so. We give people a baseline for them to compete. What I think we'll find is that people are hardworking and they do want to do those things. But the other thing I would say is um, you look at a movie like Office Space and you look at the degradation of people. You have a, I think, he, you know, at some point he, he says he says something like human beings weren't meant to sit in cubicles. Well, hell yes. You look around a, a playground of kids. You ask them what they want to be when they grow up. They certainly don't say that that's what they want to do with their lives. They want to do amazing things. And if we just allow people to do what they dream of, to go after their goals, I mean, we can have an amazing world. And so what I would say to fix this problem is, yeah, there might be people that are lazy out there. And there are moments when I feel lazy, right? But for the most part, people want to be inspired. They want to do great things. But we have to give them the room and the opportunity to do those things. No, that makes sense. And that, it, it comes to, like, I mean, there's people that have had it, I mean, horrific. You know, usually a lot of people that, um, that are the most successful come from very horrific places because they go through that suffering, right? It is, it's very difficult. They say, uh, was it, show me, show me uh, 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 the son of a rich man who becomes great, you know? Uh, show me the, yeah. you know, and that's, and that's a very difficult place to be in because you don't go through that struggles and suffering. The question is, is can you, can you gain that momentum out of the pit and, and be able to kind of level up into the area where you need to go and, and keep that momentum? Or do you spend it all on cheeseburgers and alcohol and, and stay small? But it, I, I do agree with you. If, if given the proper incentives and opportunities, you can really, there's going to be a, a, a larger majority of people that will, that will rise. Um, but again, the whole point with this whole life is it's all a choice, and some people just don't want to. They would rather, they'd rather sedate and keep it as as time goes on. But it's, but I see what you're saying. It's 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 unfair out the gate. And so, how do you at least give someone enough wiggle room? Which I think COVID was an interesting opportunity right now because everybody said, okay, reset button. We're gonna hit pause. You can't work. You you can't go to your nine to five. You can't spend all your time at work and doing these things. Now what? What are you going to do now? How are you going to figure out, you know, and this, you know, and so people start podcasts, people start doing their own things, people tinker and things. And yes, they are struggling. They're figuring out, you know, how they're going to pay their bills and stuff. But again, it's, it's, it's this global pause button that gives people to kind of get momentum. So when we do come out of this, there's some people that are going to come out of this that are going to weigh 50 pounds heavier and more <laughs> dental things. There's other people that are going to be lean, mean, and just that, 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 that took the opportunity of COVID and rolled it into something progressive. So, uh, but it sounds like, with positive communities, right, with the right economical incentives uh, to get the right uh, representa representation that actually gives a voice to people and give them the right opportunities, you can actually start to lift, group lift, rise the tide that raises all ships out of this whole funk that we found ourselves in. Something like that? Yeah, and I would say also we should be dreaming bigger. I think right now, we, we set unnecessary limitations for ourselves. So it's right now, the, the brightest minds of our time, for the most part, are spending their days thinking about different financial instruments, different commodities that they can sell, different things that they can package, uh, securities, things like that, because this is the game that we're playing. We're playing a money game right now. But we don't have to play a money game forever. Uh, we can be thinking bigger than this. So what if it were uh, 200, 300 years from now and people weren't focused on just uh, on making enough money to feed their family, just making enough money for the rent? What if instead 
people were doing things that are even beyond our imagination right now. And I'm talking about exploring inner and outer space. I'm talking about creating amazing art. I'm talking about telling stories that right now you and I, I can't even imagine. If we were to create a world with different incentives, well, we could be much more than we ever dreamed. I mean, right now they say that, um, there's vast amounts of uh, uh, underneath the oceans that we they could, might as well be another planet that we have no idea what's underneath our, our oceans right now. That's just one thing. This is in our backyard we could be exploring. There's so much more that we could do with this life if we were to expand our, our imagination, expand our thinking. So let me ask you this. Um, you know, what's your big dream? What's your big goal? What's your holy grail? What, what, what are you striving for? Me? Uh, well, my, my big goal is, is about... Um, reducing inequality. Um, to me, I think it, at the heart of, of all these problems that we're talking about is what I said earlier, our, our mistaken belief that we are divided, our mistaken belief that there is another. If we can move past that and realize our connection to each other and we can begin to make this a more equal world in terms of, I'm not saying that everybody, I'm not advocating communism by any means. What I mean by that is creating a baseline and, and so that we have a community again, in, in this country and in this world, so that people can actually reach the goals that they, they want to achieve. So that we don't have families that are going bankrupt over medical bills. We don't have children that have to go to a subpar elementary school and not learn how to read. And so they never get to go anywhere in their lives and they get stuck in the merry-go-round of the, of the, of the prison system. If we begin to change that, if we begin to change that baseline of our, first of all, of our understanding of our, of our higher selves and who we really are, and then we can change the baseline of opportunities for people so that this world that we're living in right now completely changes before our eyes. And that if it was 50 or 100 years from now, that the problems that we take for granted that will never change, those problems are gone. I'm not saying that we live in a world without problems or challenges, but different ones ones that aren't so easily fixable i love it um yeah that makes uh makes sense and also it, it aligns with your your principle set of we are all one and if we are all one then we should reduce suffering and inequality from everyone else because if you are me and i am you then i don't want to see me suffer i don't want to see you suffer and so if we yeah. reduce in suffering then that allows all of us together to collectively grow that makes sense beautiful yeah. man um if if people want to get a hold of you, Michael, if they want to find you, your work, things like that, how do they reach out to you? Yeah, well, uh, they can check out our well, check out my website, which is uh, Inkwordsmiths. So I'll spell it I N K I N K W R D S M I T H S dot com. Uh, that would be the first thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to check out the podcast mm-hmm. that I have uh, with with uh, Neil Sahota, it's Changing the Story, and you can find that at ctscast.com. Uh, you can look up um, the books that I've written. If you just check out my author's page on, on, on Amazon, uh, you can do that right there. Love it. Awesome, Michael. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate the conversations. I'm going to go back and listen to this and make a note <laughs> of all the books that you went through because I'm like, I know that one. I don't know that. I don't know it. So it was, it was beautiful. So thank you so much for your time. I appreciate this and, and keep, keep getting on with your bad self. I love it, man. Good job. Thank you. Thank bye. you. And thank you for having me. Of course, brother. Take care now. Bye. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback on how to improve the podcast, I would cherish that. Please give me an email or shout out at dylan at heroesofreality.com. That's D-Y-L-A-N at heroesofreality.com. Stay strong, young adventurers. Until next time.